Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. I usually record these intros right after the show, but I forgot when I was recording with Charles Hotskinson, my good friend, because the show was just so much fun to do. I just turned off my my recording thing and I moved on with my life. The episode with Charles was so much fun to do. Charles Hodgkinson, I mean, famous guy. I don't even need to do an intro. Founder of Ethereum, founder of Cardano, runs IOHK, one of the largest crypto R&D firms in the world. Thousands of employees, tens of thousands of ambassadors, you know, like up there. We talked about, you know, how does he avoid the key man issue being a founder of some of these coins and not running into the same like leader issues that Vitalik had run into and, you know, even like Satoshi. We went into some of the early stories of when Charles got into crypto, how he founded some of the things he founded. You know, what was really great about this episode was how comfortable Charles and I are with each other. We've been through a lot of ups and downs together as friends. So we were really, really able able to get into a, a nice, candid conversation. Sit back, relax, grab your favorite beverage, give some love to the sponsors. I'm Charlie Shrem, and I'll talk to you guys just in a moment. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Bitpanda, for making today's episode possible. We'll hear more about them later on on this episode. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem and you're listening to Untold Stories. I'm sitting here with an old time friend, Charles Hoskinson. Charles, welcome to the show. Finally. Uh, yeah, Charlie, it's been difficult. I think this is the fourth try to actually have uh, an episode together. So I apologize for uh, for all the tardiness, but I'm glad we finally got here. Well, it's a good time to be talking because, you know, the other times that we were potentially going to get you on the show, life was kind of boring. Like there was nothing really going on uh, other than what you were working on at IOHK. You probably, your response is like, my life is never boring, Charlie. I'm always working on stuff. But the world was boring, I should say. We were talking about the U.S. elections, and who wants to talk about that? Now, it's different. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. Um, you know, we have this global pandemic going on. And it, it's what's really amazing about this pandemic is that it's highlighted the fact that it's super difficult to actually get a narrative, a single, cohesive, truthful narrative figured out. You know, it, it's it's like basic stuff, such as do we have enough personal protective equipment? Do we have enough ventilators? Uh, you know, it, does this drug work or does this drug not work? Who's telling the truth? We can't know. Everything is so political now and everything's so fractionalized. Even things like, does hydroxychloroquine work? I mean, it's like, this should be an obvious thing, but we, we can't even have an intellectually honest conversation. And then uh, everybody's just trying to cover their ass. Like Sweden just decided to stay open, but just emphasize social distancing, but they left their restaurants and bars open. And then I see this article from Time Magazine uh, yesterday, where they said, "Oh well, uh, everybody's going to die in Sweden, and uh, and uh, you know the if you get coronavirus, Great. you can get it again." <laughs> I'm just thinking to myself, like you have no evidence of that. In fact, the opposite is probably true. Furthermore, if you do some extrapolations, Sweden by population density has less cases than Italy, which is under total quarantine. So it's just impossible to get accurate information right now. It's crazy. Why did the medical industry get so politicized? Like this is the first time I think that. Doctor, like my doctor emails me every day. He emails all of his patients, updates on COVID-19, you know, his thoughts and updates. But I, I should be expecting a very highly technical medical email. But more often than not, his emails are just highly political now. And I don't understand why. And well, I kind of do, but it's, I guess it sucks. I think it's a bigger situation where we've lost faith in institutions and we've lost faith in authority. And you see this. Uh, so you have these cycles in society where you have like a peak where everybody just believes the government. They're 100% invested. Like World War II is a great example of that. 
if if the U.S. government said, "Hey guys, uh, we need you to all go live in a swamp for three years," and don't ask why, they'd say, "No questions asked." Yes, sir. They just go and do it. And then in the '60s, there was like this cultural revolution, and everybody just lost faith in the government uh, due to Vietnam and all these other things. And then we started getting back to a point where we said, "Okay, institutions are okay." And then, you know, the, the 80s, we had the Reagan revolution where they said, oh, you know, the government's out to get you. So a whole political party turned against it. And now, the, you know, thanks to 10 years of postmodernism in schools and thanks to lots of uh, uh, social media and the Internet, uh, basically people are saying, we just don't trust anything. We don't trust authority. We don't trust people in positions of authority. Everything that you tell me, I'm going to be suspicious about. And we're going to find our own truth. And that's why you see things like the anti-vax movement. It's these things like 5G causes cancer or it's causing uh, you know, coronavirus. It's why you see the flat earth movement. It's like a global skepticism. It's almost like conspiracy theories are the, the uh, search for the truth, but they lost their way. It's like Bitcoin cash. Right. Well, we can't even we can't even know what the truth is. That's the fundamental problem. And then you have people even doubting if the truth exists or not. Everything is perspective. Everything's gray area. You know, I, media and uh, art tend to reflect eras. And a great example would be looking at Star Trek The Next Generation versus Star Trek Picard. Same character, same universe, two completely different ways of running a show. So Star Trek The Next Generation was very optimistic. Uh, you know, they, the, the stories were always about how do you keep your principles and optimism despite adversity? And then you go to Star Trek Picard and the Federation is corrupt. Everybody's swearing. Major characters are just like become evil or jaded. There is no truth. Uh, you know, everybody's an asshole. And so that's just a reflection of, of where we're at as a society. And, you know, there's a reason why cryptocurrencies exist. It, cryptocurrencies are the ultimate social rejection in a certain respect. Basically, we're saying the money that some dudes over the Internet have created is more reliable than the money your country is creating. And normally people would be like, that's just crazy. And now people are like, no, actually, that kind of makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I don't really trust the government. We need we need something else. Uh, we need some other truth. It's that's the same with the rise of, yeah, well, the same with the rise of Joe Rogan, when you look at that, and the intellectual dark web. Right now, the most trusted man in America is probably Joe Rogan. The most listened to podcast in America, 20, 30 million listeners a week, is Joe Rogan. And basically, it's a dude just sitting there saying, I don't know what's going on. Let's have a conversation. They talk for two or three hours. He about finds something. the most boring people ever, too. He finds the most apolitical, boring people that you would have no, not no doubt of believing them truth or not. But at least when you're listening to them, you know that potentially uh, you, you could take their word uh, for what it's worth and then make your own decision. Right. And also, he, he's not afraid to walk into controversies. Like he's had Sam Harris uh, on a show and uh, he's had Jordan yep. Peterson on a show and, you know, all these other guys. And and, and it's amazing is that, you, you know, people don't know how to understand him. So he's actually a liberal and he's actually a Bernie Sanders supporter. But then you have people on the left saying, oh, Joe Rogan's one of those uh, white supremacist meatheads. And it's like... What is going on here? It's crazy. It's like everybody wants to label somebody, put somebody in a box and turn everything into us versus them. And, uh, and it's just a symptom of, of a lack of institutions and people being propagandized and people having a difficult time trying to find truth. I mean, another thing is the, the left's obsession with Russian bots and yeah. Russian <laughs> interference. I, I mean, it's like there is some evidence they do that. In fact, I have some stories about that, personal stories about that, where, you know, shops in Ukraine reached out to us years ago saying we can FUD EOS and Tezos and all your competitors if you pay us 20K a month. And we'll create bots and trolls and things like that. So it is definitely a business. It's a real thing. But they basically have gotten to a point where they say, if I politically disagree with this person, it's not even a real human being. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a Russian bot. And on the right, they're calling the left NPCs. So it's uh, it's a crazy time. It really is. You know, our, our uh, crypto industry um, is built around decentralization, but not just our technologies that we've created, but also how we work. You know, there was way before COVID, there was the whole uh, CZ of Binance. We don't have an office. There's no definition of an office. Do you remember that when there was the yeah. whole block uh, controversy when they reported that Binance's office got raided and CZ was like, we don't have an office. So it's interesting to see that our industry is 
still chugging along and still kind of growing and um, budgeting. I sell my advertisers for the show and there's still money movement, mergers and acquisitions, uh, coin market cap. Our industry is kind of like, oh, hey, we're, we're used to this. You know, the restaurant industry can't do that. Our industry can. And we kind of align with the, hey, look, I told you so. Money is unstable. Look at the $2 trillion that are being printed right now. Um, right. As soon as we started talking, just this moment, before I even hit the record button, you were like, started, yeah, we have this launching, we're getting ready. I, I can't believe how much work and time and energy. Um, and I'm like saying to myself, oh my, we didn't even talk about COVID. We're talking about what he's building and working on. Isn't that such a beautiful sign of, you know, your company, IOHK in our industry? And then on that note, what are you working on right now? Yeah, I mean, uh, this industry, industries always reflect the products that you build. You know, if you uh, if you build decentralized products, you tend to have decentralized companies. Uh, and uh, we're no different in that respect. You know, IOHK, uh, IO, we, we operate in more than 20 countries and we have over 200 people at our company. So we're just all over the place, you know, and uh, we are doing lots of really cool things and everything we do is is generally connected to a, a certain set of philosophies so we don't do anything proprietary every line of code we write is open source we don't pursue patents we tend to collaborate with tons of different people right now mostly in the academic spectrum but we're doing projects in africa we're doing projects in the country of georgia for credential verification uh, we do a lot of government contracting. Like, for example, we uh, are working with the European Union on a decentralized software update program uh, through the Horizons 2020 project. So we're, we're kind of a, a very unique company in that respect. Uh, our academic connections are, are so pervasive. You know, I think we regularly punish, uh, publish with uh, more than 10 different universities. And what people don't understand about IO, my company, is that the work we do is useful for everybody. I get so tired in the Twitterverse and Reddit where everybody's just like in this us versus them and you're a scam. And I'm sitting here saying, guys, the UTXO model that we created and the wallet backend we created is just as valuable for Bitcoin or any UTXO style cryptocurrency. Monero, but that mentality, that mentality that you have and that I have, a lot of it's lost. Like that mentality of I'm going to build something that potentially could be useful for you. Um, it's still there. Don't get me wrong on a lot of the, especially the altcoins, but it's almost like, and I hate to say it, I'm gonna get flack, but some of the Bitcoin community is a little bit closed off when it comes to accepting ideas from other coins or tokens, right? And and that's yeah. a shame. That sucks because that's not what the original spirit. And it's a shame that a lot of the people that are involved in the spirit of crypto Twitter today weren't even around during those days right. that that you were that you were you know like hanging out with with Vitalik and and we were doing Bitcoin Magazine and stuff like that. They were no one was there. Yeah. So you know, yeah, I mean, we've both been around so long that we can remember a time that when altcoin was just a fork of Bitcoin. And the only difference- Alternative to Bitcoin, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The only difference was like a new proof of work for, and maybe a different monetary policy, like Litecoin, for example, uh, you know, four times as many tokens. And somehow that mentality has transformed to, oh, that means any altcoin is a scam. And, and then you look at these altcoins that are out today, they're so different from the ones that we grew up with. I mean, they have totally different ideas about ledger rules, consensus, network stacks, and they legitimately are doing very interesting things. And I, I think the bellwether for the industry was Ethereum. That was the first true altcoin that came out that really changed people's minds and perspectives about altcoins. And, I, and I, within the Bitcoin space, I guess they've just developed this mindset of, we just don't care. It's like 2009 was the last year of innovation. Everything after that, we can't even pay any attention to. And it's so deeply frustrating. It's not just that. And I know you've commented on this before. Um, you, you say that there's little appreciation for prior results in um, like older cryptographic research. And I think you brought up like BitShares as an example. And you said that um, BitShares could have used prior technology that was already there and proven and that works to do, uh, I think it was random number genera uh, generating. But right. they didn't. So I guess it's like not appreciative of the work of prior um, technologies is not just with Bitcoin, but it, it could happen. I guess what you and I are both agreeing on is that all these projects, coins and tokens need to continue sharing R&D and working together. Right. Yeah, well, I, I mean, just BitShares is an, a great example of that. And I think there's a world of difference from... Uh, just ignorance of 
existing solutions or prior solutions. And that gets very common when you have new entrants into an old field. What the, like, for example, when you study mathematics, the first thing every graduate student does is they start finding these cool novel proofs for these interesting patterns. And they get super excited and they go to their professor and they say, hey, uh, uh, look what I found. And they say, oh, yeah, that's, that, that was proven 100 years ago by this yeah. guy. They're like, God, God damn it. And so, and so it's the same thing happens when you have people come in and they're doing fundamental work in random number generation or consensus. They're engineers. They're not scientists. And so it's probably unreasonable to say, oh, they read Schoenmaker's paper from Crypto 99 on how to use MPC to generate random numbers uh, for a fixed quorum uh, distributed system. It's like, okay, if you're an expert in that topic and you've read that paper, this is just obvious to you. But if you're a new guy, remember that one time that was revolutionary research. So you couldn't be expected to just replicate that on demand and just know that all. So there's that, there's that one dimension. So the, the first and foremost duty of a system designer is humility. You have to have the ability to say, well, I'm probably not the smartest person in the world. Let's go look for everything else. Like we just had a conversation today about merging our VRF and Prios or of course Prios with a VDF. The very first thing we did is we said, is, did anybody implement a good VDF? And we're looking around for one because we could, we have all the people to write it ourselves, but I guarantee you there's some team somewhere that did a great VDF uh, that we could easily use that would be better than anything that we could write in short notice. And uh, that's unfortunately lacking, A, because the financial incentives aren't there for that type of collaboration, B, because a lot of the leaders in the cryptocurrency space don't have that attitude. They really don't. And C, a lot of people got rich really quickly. And what they've done is they've conflated being smart with being lucky. If you get a thousand X in a year, you're not smart. You're lucky. It's the, you just won the lottery. Congratulations. But that doesn't justify all your beliefs and all your ideas. But the, all of a sudden, if you have $200 million, now you have the financial luxury to double down on your crazy ideas with or without validation. A lot of people lost again it. Again. A lot of people lost it. Yeah, well, they did. They did. Yeah. But some of, it, some of them kept it, um, especially I the lost Bitcoin it the first time. In like, well, I remember, oh, I didn't want to, well, so I had the same mentality, right? So I, I remember this saying to myself, this conversation in 20, in 20, 2013, the first bull market, I made like, I don't know, a, a half a million dollars. Like, and that was, a, I was 19 years old. That was a huge amount of money for me. Anyways, I thought that I was smart, like you're saying. And I was like, yeah, I'm so smart, right? I was fucking lucky. Anyway, I'm sitting in jail like a year and a half later with barely a thousand dollars to my name. And I remember saying to myself, like, Charlie, you were freaking lucky. Like, you weren't smart. And I almost said to myself, have you ever had the opportunity again? Don't screw it up. And I actually did have the opportunity again. When I got out, like, we went through another bull market. And I'm really happy that I didn't make the same mistakes. And I tried telling the same people, like, diversify, make right decisions. If you kill it, make sure you, like, take off the table. Do the right thing, you know? Uh, don't speculate with your rent. But people are stupid, right. whatever. Well, no I said the thing that really impressed me the most, uh, when, when you were in jail, I think you read probably like 100 books or something like 137. that. 137. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And I remember reading the articles you wrote on Steam about that. And, There's uh, nothing else to do in there. Not that yeah, hard to read that many books. But, but most people don't. Most people don't. You'd be, it's like COVID is going on, right? It's the perfect opportunity for people to start eating right, exercising, yeah. and reading. It's so funny that you say that. do that? It was... Uh, I was telling, talking to a friend who was in jail the other day, who not currently, but uh, just like a support group that I'm in. And uh, he was, I was like joking. I said, isn't it funny how the world is doing what we had to do? So like the first few weeks, everyone in prison goes through like extreme anxiety because you're changing your lifestyle from like living in a mansion or whatever, living how you want. to like living in a cell. So you have to like completely, but the human body is extremely resilient. If you were dropped in the desert, right? With a little bit of water and food enough for every day, you would, you would probably live like we're very resilient beings. And unless we're put in extreme situations, you just don't know that, but you, you should have faith in that because I've been through a situation, but now people are seeing that with COVID. So you, everyone had like anxiety, but now everyone's like settling into their new norm and they're getting excited about doing driveway yoga, you know? And then it's funny right. how everyone's like, I was telling my wife, I was like, isn't it so funny how people are either like, gaining a ton of weight and eating really crappy or they're like doing really well and eating really healthy right. and, and losing weight and getting into, it's like very extreme. And it's so funny because in jail you have both. I mean, I would see people who were weighed like five, 600 pounds in there. 
that would literally wrap themselves in like uh, saran wrap just to like figure out a way to like sweat faster and to lose weight. That's how much they wanted to lose weight. Wow. Yeah. yeah and it, it, it's just, it's all about what you make of the circumstances that you're put in. You don't get to choose the cards. Things happen all the time, fairly or unfairly. You know, I, I had a friend uh, and we kind of grew up together and he, he wanted to be a surgeon and he, he was extremely disciplined about it, man. He, he became paramedic when he was an undergrad and then he went to a really good medical school. Uh, I think it was University of California, San Francisco, or one of those UCAL schools is really hard to get into. And then he was four years into his surgical residency when he developed a neural degenerative disorder. And it left him with very limited dexterity in his hands. So basically, it ended his career as a surgeon. So could you imagine that? Like spending 12 years going on this crazy journey finally getting to a point where you actually have achieved it and you're just about to enjoy the fruits of it. You got all the student loan debt and then suddenly, uh, suddenly you develop this, this, this generative disorder that basically makes it impossible for you to have that dream. And he's still one of the happiest guys I've ever met. And it just blows my mind. It really does. Cause I'm like, you've just lost your life dreams. Like, yeah, well, there's another one. I'll find something else. So now he's uh, he's gotten a lot into playing chess and to Tai Chi and to all these other things. And yeah. he's actually a super happy dude. And it's like really zen and everything like that. How he are does you doing? a lot of Well, you know, I'm doing great too. I I it's it's funny because it, there's like this Twitter perception of Charles Hoskinson and then there's the real <laughs> Charles Hoskinson. What's the Twitter t- perception? It's like the do you know who I am guy, you know, like the guy who yells at the waitress at the restaurant because he doesn't have enough bacon on his plate or something. You know, it's just like they have this crazy idea. of. I need to stop you there. I don't think that's like the Twitter perception anymore. You took that in very good spirits. So because of that and because now Rick can make fun of you about it uh, on Twitter, I think the community largely, at least I do, and the people I talk to see you as someone who is able to take it things lightly you know what i mean like i don't think they see you as the screaming person i don't think maybe for like a day but i don't i think it's more funny i think that actually helped not that you were looking for your image to be helped but that like puts you in a little bit of a of a a lighter light a lighter light i don't know if that's accurate well i i don't know i mean it's uh, (laughs) you've known me for seven years and you know we've seen each other at our best and worst uh you know and and so it's always easy to give people that you spent time with and you understand the benefit of the doubt you know, the other thing is, is this bizarre perception that i keep leaving projects it's like i've been working on cardano since 2015 pretty much full time <laughs> it's like everybody else has left their projects except for Vitalik i think dan larimer owns that reputation yeah, but people say it. People say, oh, he left this one and left this one and he was fired from this one and fired from this one. It's like, he was fired from ETC. And it was like, what are you even talking about? You can't be fired from ETC. It's a decentralized ecosystem. We yeah. just stopped putting money into it because we spent a million and a half dollars and there was no revenue stream. And I couldn't just keep throwing money at a dead project. Come on, guys. Uh, but but nobody kicked us out. If we showed up tomorrow and said, we're going to reset up Mantis, uh, we'd be welcomed with open arms. So there's this bizarre gap between reality and it's like I live on a farm in Longmont. I do hydroponics. I got animals. My life is awesome. I, there's not a lot of stress on the on the day. I thought you lived and, on a uh, ranch. Yeah, it's it's a ranch, fifty acres. What's the uh, difference so, between a ranch and a farm? A uh, ranch, you have to have livestock and you have to commercialize them. Whereas a farm, you grow crops. And so I grow hay on the farm and I do uh, have farm animals. I, I have horses and goats and donkeys, but I don't commercialize the uh, the animals. So what I if guess you sold one egg? You can call uh, yourself I, a ranch and a farm. Yeah, that's a good question. Does selling eggs make you a ranch? I don't think so because usually it's livestock. So it'd have to have uh, cattle or you know something like that. Either slaughter the cattle or – and if you sell the milk, you're a dairy – you know, uh, this, this this place used to be a turkey farm back in the day and uh, back in the 1880s, uh, the place that I bought. And it was a wreck when I, I moved in. So I had to spend a whole year fixing everything up. And it's just amazing how much stuff could break. Yeah, I got two horses, two horses right now, uh, Jameson and Misty. Are they expensive and, uh, to maintain? I'm just curious. Well, if you grow, if you grow your own hay, uh, they're not expensive That's at all. That's the largest uh, cost? Interesting. Yeah, yeah. The feed is uh, f- food and boarding is usually the largest guy, and then there's a lot of little expenses that come up. Uh, you know, for example, you have to float their teeth, so you have to have a horse dentist come in every year and do some stuff, and then vaccinations and and various infections. And horses always find ways to get themselves injured. 
you know, so they, they're not exactly cheap animals, but if uh, in the kind of setup we have, it's probably a few hundred bucks per month. So it's not super expensive. I want to ask you a question. Um, one of my members of uh, the Crypto IQ trading room was asking um, earlier, um, what are your plans and upcoming features for the payment gateway for merchants? That's a good question too. So uh, the problem of merchant, and this is something you've you've done for a long time too. I mean, oh, the, yeah. the problem with with merchant adoption is is that not only do you have to integrate with these POSs, but then there's also the value stability issue. So you know what we've seen with merchants historically is that they'll only take a crypto asset if they have a quick path to either locking in the value or divesting the asset. So they'll say, yeah, sure, we'll accept Bitcoin as a form of payment, but as long as it ends up as US dollars or euros in my bank account, I'm okay. So whoever does that conversion step of making it easy for a merchant to accept a cryptocurrency generally is also in the trading and market making business. They have to have some sort of back end for currency conversion there. Now, what we can do at the Cardano side is we can make it ridiculously easy to integrate to various different payment systems. In fact, one of our guys who works on the product side, his name is Nick Nafak. Uh, has been doing payments for years. He helped build Apple Pay and you know he built a lot of these systems. And we did a lot of experimentation with things like how do we make this work well on cell phones and work well with NFC uh, and so forth. So uh, we're probably going to build out some hooks into the standard Cardano software suite that'll make it pretty easy to integrate into existing payment solutions. Now, in terms of being able to do fast payments, Hydra one of the Ouroboros variant protocols allows us to have fast finality, so you have instant settlement. Uh, and then it also allows you to do microtransactions. So we think that'll be pretty cool on the tipping side. But we are actively looking at value stability. In particular, we're looking, we have a small skunk works under Bruno Paleo, one of our PhD researchers, doing basically a, a due diligence on existing stablecoin solutions, because it'd be super cool to have a stablecoin in the Cardano ecosystem. And then that could be used uh, for payments. Uh, and for lending and for insurance products and basically as a unit of account for the system. Uh, and as long as there's an ADA uh, component to it, then it indirectly actually benefits ADA by, by having that token there. But it's a, it's a puzzle of a problem. Um, there's been some positive development, though, since your time. Uh, like, for example, Samsung has integrated cryptocurrency wallet right into the Galaxy lineup. And that means basically billions of people technically have Ethereum wallets. Uh, you know, built into their phones because of the distribution of that platform. And I suspect within the next three, four years, we're probably going to see a lot of similar experiences being built into iPhones and other such things. And then there'll be kind of a seamless integration into these NFC payment systems like Samsung Pay and Apple Pay, and Google Pay, uh, and so forth. So uh, I, I think really what we need to do is we just need to make sure that we have a stable coin somewhere on the roadmap. Two, we need to make sure that we have a clear path to integrate into these large-scale NFC-style cell phone payment systems, and we have a clear path of getting the cryptocurrency onto the cell phone. And then uh, that will, and also we need to make sure we have a fast finality and a micropayment solution. So that'll cover a lot of the spectrum. But then there's still this issue of, well, does the merchant actually want to do this or not? And probably the best way of getting merchant adoption is syndication through existing providers. Like we could go and talk to Square or, you know, talk to another you know, payment provider who has already all those merchant relationships and, uh, you know, basically get them to onboard that. And I want to talk about Bitpanda for a second. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that we're working with them and we have been for a few months now. They love me and I love them. So I'm asking that you give them some love and some support, especially if you're listening from Europe. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. It doesn't hurt. Actually, it helps that they're based out of Austria, which is one of my favorite countries in the world. And Vienna is one of my favorite cities in the world to visit. I try to go as frequently as I can. And, you know, meeting up with the Bitpanda team is always a pleasure. I really like Bitpanda's approach. Why? Well, basically what they're doing is to apply the same tech that we're used to from Bitcoin and apply it to other digitized assets. And, and I'll explain why. And, and if you check out their website, you'll understand how that actually works. Because they're really pushing hard for bringing crypto to the masses and, and educate people on the topic. Unlike other companies that just want to really give love to their customers, Bitpanda is giving love and, and, and spending money on mass adoption, just bringing more people into Bitcoin. 
with their recently launched educational platform. It's not only free, it's called Bitpanda Academy. It's not only free, but you'll actually learn and you'll earn five euro just for taking quizzes on their site. So it's a great way to force you to learn more about Bitcoin. Check them out. Again, they give me love. So I'm asking for you, my listeners, to give them some love. I heard a radical take to merchant adoption and you you triggered it in my head because you said the word puzzle, right? So it very much is a puzzle, like a chicken and egg problem. And the radical take to adoption is you need an ecosystem for real adoption. And what that what the what the theory is, and I'm almost like it's not been theorized. I'm almost like taking it now scientifically and putting it into a theory. So here we go. The theory is to radically discourage merchant adoption when they're transferring to fiat. And the, the, the hypothesis is if you only promote a, a, a small ecosystem where people are using the the coiner token and never like selling out and they're keeping it within the ecosystem. So so an ecosystem where they people are only selling like socks to each other, you know, like but there's right. no merchant adoption adoption is better than a ecosystem where all it is is people real merchants buying and selling that coin on exchanges. There's no it's not real adoption. And then the the theory again is that given enough time, that ecosystem will grow. And then you'll have a, you know, a, a contained ecosystem where you wouldn't need to worry about privacy, right, Charles, because no one's ever leaving it. So privacy built in privacy would be inherent. You wouldn't have to worry about the toll booths, the coin bases, because no one would ever be really be, be, be spending. So you just have people like the, the fiat on and off ramps or would be like really the only ones putting seller adoption. There are inherent problems with that. But then you can go further and say like, in an ecosystem, let's just say Cardano, and I think it is, is an ecosystem like that now. You have, you know, you have tens of thousands of people, you have more, you have wall- millions of wallets, you have, I don't know the exact metrics, but you have people using it, spending it, buying and selling, but also there's an ecosystem. So right. um, on top of that, and you said stablecoin, the theory continues to go on. Uh, and when I say theory, it's my theory, not my theory, but this is the theory that I've heard. It continues to go on and say, hey, a real stablecoin could only work when you have it built on top of a coin like Cardano, because like like ADA, because then you'd have the the situation like MakerDAI is going through right now. You wouldn't have that occur. What are your comments on my crazy theory? Well, you know, I, I first I think that the only thing that makes sense for merchants is if you have a token that is it has very low volatility, uh, and the reason being is that merchants are not currency speculators. You know, this is one of the reasons why gold never really took off as, as a, a good money form. It was always that thing where we we liked it because it was durable and divisible. And, you know, it also, you can't counterfeit it easily. And there was easy tests you could have to verify it was real. But on the other hand, it was heavy and, you know, and also it, it was quite volatile. And so people said, can we create something uh, you know, maybe it's connected to gold, but can we create something as a representation that doesn't have that volatility? Because people need to base because merchants live on thin margins. You know, if you're Walmart, most of the shit you sell five percent, ten percent margin. That's it. So if you have that kind of volatility, your underlying asset, it's almost impossible for you to operate profitably and predictably in that ecosystem. Uh, so yeah, the key here, I think, is instead of saying, well, let's create these closed circular economies where everything is transacted with the underlying uh, cryptocurrency. Like that's a, that's been what Bitcoin's been trying to do with Roger for the longest time. He's been chasing that forever. Uh, let's let's create a stable coin and let's have a stable coin that somehow has a connection to the control token of the, of the ledger. So in our case, that would be ADA or in the case of Ethereum, Ether. And if you're really clever about that design, then you can push the speculation risk and the volatility risk to the underlying asset and maybe some intermediaries. Uh, and then the actual token is that merchants use is, uh, is stable. Now, the advantage there is twofold. One, then merchants don't want to exit that token. They treat it just like they would dollars or euros. They don't. It's not like somebody in you know Greece says, "I have to go exchange my euros for dollars to go buy lunch." No, they just use euros, right? Because that's the native currency. So similarly, you'd have this currency that's fairly stable, and they they would hold it and they would use it like a circular economy. And two, then you can go and find merchants that really are underbanked. 
In Colorado, the greatest example we have is the marijuana industry. They, these guys are literally sitting on mountains of cash, hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars of cash, and they live in a complete cash economy because they can't get bank accounts. So they're they're paying their taxes. They're wildly successful. In fact, they got in a big fight with the IRS and the and the and uh, the local Department of Revenue here because uh, the IRS didn't want to accept dollars. <laughs> just imagine that you know you really? print on for the tax money payments for tax payments. You you put on the money. You put on the money. These are this is good for all debts, foreign and domestic. And the IRS says pass, and so they say, sure, we'll ship you a hundred thousand dollars cash. They say no, we can't take that. You need to wire it to us. And they're like. No, you say this is good. We're going to have to send it to you. We can't get bank accounts. So this is an underbanked ecosystem. And uh, there are a lot of these underbanked arms dealers, uh, the porn industry. There's, and those are just, those are the vice industries. Um, but then there are, there are other industries where it's just difficult to maintain banking, uh, especially when you're talking about remittances. Those industries build products for themselves. Uh, the same way, it's so funny that you say that because uh, the cannabis, so the cannabis industry built a product for themselves because- the traditional merchant processing wouldn't accept them. Right. Florida, we have a very robust medical cannabis industry here. I have like five dispensaries within a five-minute drive of here. Uh, they don't want to accept cash. So they have this app called CanPay. And I know it's a Silicon Valley app. And it's only for the cannabis industry. And it allows them, it allows you to, as a as a buyer to set up your bank account to do like purchase uh, cannabis through an ACH transfer, but for you, it's just like right. using Venmo when you're actually checking out. But it kind of works the same way like a Bitcoin app would work. You scan the QR code of the merchant. I'm like, this actually app is pretty awesome. It works better than Apple Pay. So it's funny how like the cannabis industry built a product for themselves that does a better job at merchant adoption than the traditional financial industry. Right. And, and this is a great example of a necessity being the mother of all invention. This is why I, I love being in Africa, because, you know, there it's the most hostile, difficult business environment to succeed in, because you just have no consistency. You have to work around the fact that sometimes you don't have rule of law. You have wonky things like capital controls. And so when you start building products in those ecosystems, it really does uh, give you a lot of creativity. You know, working with scarcity is one of the most valuable things you can have with product innovation. And it's a great example with the marijuana industry. It's just one example. You know, they, oh, we can't get a payment system. Let's create our own payment system. And so they go and do that. Uh, and so the harder you clamp down on people, the more they push back and the more innovation that they uh, that they add. So I think if we get a stable coin that really works and it's, you know, proven the test of time, so it shows that it's resistant to regulation and litigation, it shows that it has actual predictable stability, there's a good turnaround, it doesn't require custodians or centralization, uh, then you'll see a lot of merchant adoption in boutique industries. But then the killer app for that is, are countries that default a lot. And then all of a sudden, you can have 500 million users. Like a great example would be Argentina or Zimbabwe or Uruguay. These are countries where for no fault of the people, they just have stupid people running their central banks and stupid people running their fiscal and monetary policy. So the, they just keep defaulting and they just keep falling apart. So nobody wants to hold the underlying asset or do business in the underlying asset, whether it be the peso or the bear or whatever. And so they have to use a secondary currency. And uh, what you basically do is say, hey, we have this great user experience. It works right on your cell phone. It's as stable as the US dollar, if not better. You can get loans in it. You can do international business and everybody accepts it. Uh, there you go. And then suddenly you wake up, you have 500 million users inside that ecosystem. We saw that happen with M-Pesa in Africa. And those were just cell phone minutes. And I think we can build the next generation of that. And that's how you truly de-dollarize the world. That's how you truly get cryptocurrencies into the mainstream hand. Uh, and then people are going to say, well, who's going to curate the systems that hold these things up? Well, that's what the underlying tokens are about, the ethers and the ADAs, uh, uh, either explicitly or implicitly. And they give you the ability to decide where these systems go. And, this, and those, those tokens, of course, will reflect the network value of suddenly having 500 million users or a billion users. So I'm very bullish on what we're doing, what we're building. And it just makes sense in a global economy where you don't want anybody to be in charge. And the fact that we can embed regulation into transactions and dynamically adjust it for each country, and you can scale the amount of metadata and identity and other things. There's just so much more richness in these systems than the existing settlement systems have. And I, I don't have to ask for permission to build any of this. I can just go do it. It gets done. 
and then suddenly we have hundreds of millions of users and then it's an inconvenient uh, reality for the incumbency and they, they just can't do anything about it. It seems like the common denominator of all the projects that you've been involved in uh, and kind of like one of the pivotal moments of your career, like that'll be written in the history books of when, you know, your, your thoughts and Vitalik's thoughts kind of diverged of, of the future of like a crypto uh, the common denominator is that is it seems like you believe um, a, a a cryptocurrency needs some sort of like governance on chain. Is that still the case? Because you, I mean, you even yeah. cited Tezos as a as a good project, which is like super governance, like crazy. And I've talked to Arthur right. on the show a few times. Brilliant individual. Yeah, you know, we the Tezos community and I have certainly have uh, some history. Um, <laughs> which is just unfortunate because we actually have a lot more in common than we have differences, but they're, they're not exactly, they haven't exactly been the nicest people to us. But anyway, uh, you, you know, I think that is probably the biggest difference between Vitalik and I. Uh, there are two. One, I really respect processes and uh, like formal methods and uh, peer review. He doesn't. And two, uh, I really believe that on-chain governance and democracy is super important for the long-term sustainability of the system. And he doesn't. Uh, he thinks that that's a meta to the cryptocurrency. Um, so uh, you, you're quite apt to bring up Tezos because actually Tezos does investigate governance at a very deep level. And I, I have a lot of respect for anybody who does these types of experiments. It's not just them. There's also Dash and Decred and dozens of others of projects, small and, and large, uh, explicit or implicit, that are trying to democratize the control of these systems. And I think it's not optional. I mean, if you look at the, the chaos with Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin and just how much damage that caused, or the chaos with Ethereum and Ethereum Classic, these are great examples of where when you don't have a system for people to express themselves and create consent to do controversial things, you just fracture. And the only other option is fragmentation. And it's not an option to say, I'll oh, just fork the code. I'm sorry, you can't go and get governments and enterprises and other people to go build on your ecosystem if you have a catastrophic fight every two or three years, and then they have to make political decisions of what underlying infrastructure. Could you imagine that being Wi-Fi or TCPIP? No, you're right. You know, and this goes into yeah. my next question was of the key man problem. How do you avoid that? How do you avoid the Vitalik key man problem? You know that Satoshi has the solution to that, disappearing. Um, you, you... I would say that you don't have <clears throat> you don't have that problem. Your projects don't see you as like they do see you as a leader, but they don't. I don't think you have the same key man problem as that Vitalik right. has. Like his problem. Well, it, the, the difference between Vitalik and I is Vitalik's a whole lot more likable than I am. <laughs> so my like my lack of likability in certain circles certainly does help me for avoiding a cult of personality to form. You know, no one ever criticizes Mr. Rogers, but they certainly have a lot to say about the asshole in the back. So I think that that does help a bit. It's actually counterproductive to have a beneficent dictator. Um, so uh, there are three things I think you have to do to avoid your system from being co-opted. First, you have to create a decentralized brain. The, one of the reasons why Ethereum has key man risk for Vitalik is that their innovation and research tends to move at the speed of Vitalik. So as he learns new things, like he learns how snarks work or how consensus protocols work, then their whole roadmap tends to pivot in these particular directions. And if he's really good at one thing, they tend to be really good at that. If he's weak somewhere, they tend to be weak somewhere. And they've made hundreds of little missteps because of that. So one of the things we did with Cardano is we said, we're going to follow this peer review process. And that had nothing to do with just being like arrogant academics in ivory towers. We actually wanted to have the most inclusive and decentralized way of doing science. And so if you look at our research output, more, more than 60 papers, the real thing that's special about that is that they were written from graduate students up to postdocs, up to tenured professors across the entire world from Japan to America. We have people all across the world writing papers, proposing research. And what we've done is we've constructed a way so that more and more academics can get involved and have diverse ideas and collaborate with each other. And over time, eventually, we'll have hundreds of them floating around across dozens of institutions. So what does that mean to you, the holder of ADA? What does it mean to the person vetting different projects? It means if Charles Hoskinson dies... Every single day, there's still going to be papers being written, research being done, and there's an endless supply, renewing supply of new graduate students, new professors, new people who basically can make money 
and get credit and get, advance their careers by working on Cardano. That's not a hypothetical. That's a fact. In fact, the University of Wyoming fu- funding that we did is probably the single greatest achievement. It's the capstone because we got the university to accept ADA. So what does this mean? It means that for our research labs that we're setting up, now they don't even have to go talk to input-output. They don't have to talk to the Cardano Foundation. They can just, once our treasury system is running, go and say, hey, we want to set up a research lab to go do some Cardano research. The students groups can push this. And then they can go directly to the the Cardano blockchain, treat it like the NSF, and get funded to do that. And I guarantee you that's going to happen next year. So that means we've created first a decentralized brain. We have a replenishing supply of people to work on new protocols and and deal with trade-offs and handle problems and flaws. Second, you need some sort of voting system where people can express in a constructive way their opinion and uh, ask for consent to do stuff, whether that be soft forks or hard forks or ask for money. And that's that's the whole point of our treasury project, Voltaire. And actually, very soon we're going to start releasing some things, including a voting app and other stuff. That'll come. That's definitely on the horizon. It's not way out there. It's our roadmap is not sequential. It's parallel. So Shelley and Voltaire are being worked on at the same time. And the point there is, the minute you have that, it's no longer a conversation of who wins, who decides, who's right. It's now just the nuances of the voting system. And are we getting what we want out of that? Do we have high participation? Do we have meaningful participation? Do we have good idea flow? And you can iterate and evolve that system over time. And then eventually you can get to a steady state where you have a stable governance system. And then what a governance system allows you to do is work your way through controversy, work your way through disagreements constructively, and also manage transitions of power and give consent to things like changes of the monetary policy, changes of the protocol that are necessary for the protocol to move in and other directions. And the third thing is that you do have to have some Satoshi-like mindset of stepping away from power. I mean, this is an American principle. Uh, George Washington, after serving two terms, he basically could have indefinitely stayed in the White House. He, He could have been a king if he wanted to. Yeah. But instead, he voluntarily walked away from power because he understood that everybody, no matter how competent or capable, has their time in the spotlight and for the sake of, of the community, you have to step away at some point or else you become everything that you're not. It's yeah. interesting that you say that because um, a year or two ago, I was working for um, a bank uh, consulting for them on crypto related. And one of the things that I was building for them was this metric called token investor loyalty. And it was a way to like, like quantify the community, a, a token community's loyalty to that token when that token or coin goes through like some rough shit, you know, like, I mean, it's hard to like, uh, you know, a mathematician, it's very difficult to, 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 to quantify that, but I was working on it and we, we did do some, some very, very good progress that, that came close. Why am I bringing this up now? Because we didn't plan for like a COVID type of situation. We also, one of the things we didn't plan, a few of the things we did plan for are things that you brought up. And I'm happy that you said that. One of the things that Bitcoin would always score higher than every other coin is um, the unlitigation ability. And you brought you it's you brought this up, and I wrote it down as soon as you said. I don't want to interrupt you, but the fact that Bitcoin can't be litigated against is such a huge metric that gives a score of a hundred. Whereas you're seeing with MakerDAO and you're seeing with Ethereum or just any coin or token that can be litigated against where the coiner token could be shut down or power be moved or things like that. That is one example. So I feel like almost Satoshi thought of these things and he said, one day someone's going to sue. One day someone's going to attack. One day the government's going to try to assassinate. How do you prevent against these things? You can do everything you can to like keep yourself anonymous or private, or you can just walk away. And resilient systems have the ability to deal with threats as they come up. You, you, you know, litigation is just devastating for progress. Uh, lawyers are probably one of the single most damaging elements in modern society for a variety oh, of reasons. Tell me like, about it. I, I asked my brother, he's a doctor. I said, uh, are you going to do some locum work for COVID? Uh, why don't you go out to New York? And uh, and he said, and I'd love to, but there's no way I'm going to go out there because I've had three friends who are out there and every single one of them has already been sued multiple times by family members of COVID patients. 
So think of this. You have these doctors exposing themselves to extreme harm, and they're working 18-hour, 20-hour days, seven days a week in extremely difficult conditions without proper personal protective equipment, and they're dealing with a disease that's killing a lot of good people. And, you know, it's just a disease. It's a terrible disease. Yet the minute that the family member dies, these lawyers show up and say, well, let's make something of that law. Sue the doctor. One doctor, three lawsuits already because people died. It's like, okay, so he does everything in his power to try to help these people. Well, litigation is the heart of the American bloodstream right there. (laughs) It's it's horrible. It's horrible. So what does it mean? And so what does it mean? It means the doctor practices defensive medicine. It means you start building defensive medical systems and it cascades and ripples through. Hospitals don't want to admit mistakes, so they can't correct the mistakes. People don't want to share information. Uh, Basically, it just became a game of covering your ass. And so the same situations happen in the financial industry because of regulation. Over-regulation of the financial industry means that everybody is afraid to innovate because they're thinking, oh, God, this product that I've constructed, because it's not quite regulated or understood, I don't know where the regulations fall. I may have civil or criminal liability. A great example would be MakerDAO. They just got sued. $28 million lawsuit just filed, I think, two, three days ago. I read it on Bitcoin.com because of the, the liquidation event that occurred March 12th. So now they have that. Now, and there's also class action down in Florida was filed. Uh, 11, uh, 11 mm. different ventures got sued uh, for various issues here. And, and it's just a crazy thing. Is that, so they say, oh, well, we bought it at the all-time high. And uh, now that it's crashed, we want a full refund. And you forgot about how much time it takes. Someone was like, yeah, 2020 is the year of litigation. I said, are you stupid? I said, the whole year, the whole decade is the year of litigation. Right. It takes right. And the only people who win are the lawyers. Those are the only people who win. Yeah. So having a system that's litigation resistant, where you have no one you can sue, it means you now have a safe sandbox where you can experiment a liability-free way to go in and update things that badly need to be updated, whether that be the concept of identity or financial innovation, which is desperately needed, or medical innovation, whatever the hell it means to be. Because at the end of the day, the stagnation of these systems it's not just academic. It really does hurt people. I tell you one of the things that was so eye-opening to me, I went to Mongolia uh, last year. I sat down with the president of the country and um, so, several of the ministers. And we'll talk to the health ministers and some of the universities there. They, I, I asked them, well, what's your biggest problem you currently have? And they say, uh, we are adulteration of medicine. I said, what do you mean by that? They say, if you take a pill in Ulaanbaatar, which is the capital of Mongolia, about half the people live there. If you take a pill you have a 50% to 33% chance, so between a third and a half chance, that that pill is either expired, a sugar pill, so it's not even real, or in some way it's adulterated. So can you imagine that? You, you have tuberculosis or, or some disease, and you're trying to take some antibiotics, and you have a third to a half chance that the pill you're taking that was prescribed by a doctor, uh, bought at a pharmacy, is not even real, or it has somehow has a problem with it. So these are examples of real life problems that exist because of supply chains or problems with global trade or liability protection. And I say, well, you know, why uh, why couldn't we get you know uh, something sorted here? They say, well, the American companies don't even want to touch it because they're worried about certain regulations. And the and the only country that we can trade with for medicine at scale that we need is China, and we always end up getting screwed there. And there's no recourse to it because Mongolia is small, China is big. So these are just examples of of where the consequence of these liability systems or overregulation can basically harm real life people and create all kinds of terrible problems. For example, people tend to overconsume antibiotics and hoard them in Mongolia. So they take by, by per capita, per population, twice as many antibiotics as their nearest neighbor on the list, uh, Iran. And so uh, now they have a big epidemic in Mongolia of drug resistant tuberculosis. If you think that COVID is bad, imagine getting tuberculosis that you can't treat. That's a disease that killed millions of people regularly before antibiotics exist. In fact, Richard Nixon, two of his brothers died of tuberculosis. Okay, so not not exactly. When you uh, go to ancient- when you go to prison, one of the first things they test for is TB. The first yeah. thing they test for is TB. I swear, I was like, why am I being tested for TB? I never even knew about it. You know, I thought we got rid of this like polio, like right. you know. But no, they and test can for you it. Imagine, and can you imagine getting tuberculosis that you can't cure and yeah, you just slowly die and and you can't even have relationships with like people Huntington's because you disease? Them? 
Oh my God. Yeah. Is anyone watching zero 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 right now? I mean, what a crazy TV show you should on Amazon. He has a Huntington's disease and it's just emotional, unbelievable show though, but exactly what you're describing. You can't have relationships. You can't go out even date when you're 20 years old because you may, you're going to start degrading at the age of 40, you know, it's the same thing. Right, exactly. And so, so we have overregulation and over litigation and these issues creating systemic problems. And then the poorest people in the world tend to be the people who suffer the most from this. But I think, you know, actually COVID is going to have a very positive outcome. Because what COVID is doing is it's exposing inequality, it's exposing injustice, and it's, it's also exacerbating the difference between the rich and the poor. I mean, the reality is my lifestyle hasn't changed at all with COVID out. You know, I, I have this beautiful farm. It's, uh, I generally work at home. Okay. I'm not traveling as much, but I, I, I'm not afraid of getting laid off. I'm not afraid of not being able to make rent. I, I own my ranch. I don't have mortgage. So I have no problems at all. But if you know, we have a lot of friends, uh, who are waitresses yep. who work in the service industry, entertainment industry, they're just totally wiped out. Devastated. And they live, they, they live paycheck to paycheck. And they ask, well, why did this happen? And, and the answer can't be because reasons move on. They're gonna, there's going to be a political revolutions that exist here in every industry, the financial industry, the healthcare industry, all kinds of industries are going to be under enormous scrutiny on the back end of COVID. And it's a great opportunity to rebuild things. The, the irony in this whole thing is that COVID will make America great again. Like all these yeah. political and social revolutions that are going to happen, and and Trump will get the credit for that. Yeah, it's an interesting <laughs> thing about what's going to happen there. I mean, just the the way the media has been reacting to Trump has been so counterproductive and sad. I, I mean, this was the single greatest bipartisan opportunity to change the American healthcare system since Medicare in the 1960s. The single greatest opportunity to do it yeah. had both parties recognized that. Instead, they just wanted to go and say, let's just blame people. And find who's who's to blame, and let's let's just write some stuff down and, and broadcast some emails. It's like, how is that helpful? It's like it's like it, the analogy is your house is on fire, and instead of looking for a way to get out of the house, you're you're arguing over who started the fire. <laughs> it's insanity. It's just insanity. absolute insanity, and uh, and it, just shame on everybody for getting drawn into this. I, you know, it, there were certainly a lot of mistakes that Trump made, but we're going to be talking about these mistakes for 10 years. You know, another thing, too, is that I firmly believe that COVID probably came from a Chinese lab. You know, looking at the preponderance of the evidence, it's not a big conspiracy. And this is another reason why I'm really getting sick and tired of this damn media. So here's the situation. China's official story says that wet markets sold bats that don't even exist in Wuhan. They're 900 miles away. And then somebody got infected from that. Makes no sense at all. Those markets, when people actually went to them and talked to people, said, we've never sold these things. It's just fantasy. Meanwhile, just a few miles down the road from the wet markets is a literal virological research center that studies COVID. (laughs) And they have the bats there at the center. And there's been numerous safety complaints and concerns. I think this is known. I think Trump knows this. I think the Chinese government knows we probably know this. I don't think it's much of a conspiracy theory, but I think that this is this has been decided that maybe this information doesn't need to come out now. But I, I bet you, you know, because there's a reason the media is not talking about it. Like the media loves conspiracy theories. Um, I bet you you're going to see down the road once everything is cleared up and we have cases under control that information come out but maybe now is not yeah, the right time like it's it's a card yeah, but, but that I mean, Trump- just look at look at look at the china's response for 2003 versus today so 2003 the sars epidemic when it first happened there they were very open public they worked hand in hand with the who uh, and there really wasn't a big cover up there and then look at it to, uh, w- with this event the local government basically went into panic mode and they tried to bury everything and they even imprisoned doctors who spoke out against the who and other people why would you do that? You do that because you're covering your ass and you're deeply afraid of the consequences of the information. But what? But, but my point about bringing this up is whenever anybody talks about this in the media, the, the only words they use is conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory. You know, this is a great example as we began this conversation of the loss of faith in institutions. This revolution post-COVID, the whole media is going to be revised. It's got to be torn down and rebuilt. 
it is a disgusting enterprise right now. It's not a partisan thing of Republican versus yeah. Democrat. They they really have become enemies of the people because they're not they don't care about the truth. They care about narratives in a, anything that goes counter. It's their a result of the, the internet, the though. The media the media feels like it's you know the media was put in a not feels the media was put in a corner with social media, and this is their reaction to get more radical, more extreme. But but Charles, you know, like before we wrap up, what. Um, going back to Cardano for a second, um, what are you guys about to launch and how can everyone follow uh, you know, the most recent updates? Someone wants to get interested in ADA. Someone wants to get involved as a developer. Right. How can they get involved? Like, What's the jumping off point for a listener who's interested in getting involved in your project from now? So uh, uh, we've been working on Cardano for about five years now, and uh, it's left an academic project to a real life functional cryptocurrency. And it's turning rapidly into a very useful platform to build things. And really there are four behaviors, uh, you know, so those who wish to acquire ADA and hold it, uh, those who wish to develop on the platform, write smart contracts, that type of stuff. Uh, those who wish to be a participant in the operations of the platform. So stake pool operators, delegation, these types of things. And then finally, those who wish to govern. So those who have opinions, they want to vote on things and so forth. So what we're going to do is we're right now rebuilding the Cardano.org website. And that's going to be out very soon. Uh, and it's going to have dedicated content that we built with McCann, a marketing agency, uh, uh, for all four of those roles. And this is everything. We've redone all the documentation. We're creating lots of infographics. We have a lot of videos and blog posts. So that's going to be, in the next few months, the best place to go uh, for long-term information. In the short term, uh, we have a lot of great content on our website, iohk.io. Uh, we have a great blog, and it contains tons of things. And uh, also, we have lots of uh, knowledge feeds. For example, our YouTube channel has several hundred videos, and we even do a monthly product update. Uh, where we bring all of our product managers together and then we do weekly updates about the incentivized test net. And then we're going to start doing bi-weekly updates about Daedalus and other things with the flight program. So if you go to our YouTube channel or our Twitter feeds, uh, that's that's a lot of timely, real-time information about what's going on. But what we need to do is get to a single source of truth and we're working on that. And Cardano.org is going to be that single source of truth and that universal website. You just go there. It's a one-stop shop. And so regardless, if you want to be a stake pool operator to a developer to, you know, maybe an institution that's taking it as seriously, uh, that's the place to go. And it's going to help you get routed to uh, where you want to be. And as for Shelly itself, um, we've had overwhelming success in the launch of it. You know, we, we've been building up to getting Shelly out. And what people don't understand about Shelly is it's not just this, oh, I just flip a th switch. Now we're Shelly. We're done. I mean, literally, we're talking about taking a live cryptocurrency and changing the entire way that cryptocurrency operates from a federated model to a completely decentralized model. I mean, that would be like taking Ripple and saying, okay, uh, Ripple Labs, you're no longer running anything. It's now going to be run by the entire XRP community. I mean, that's a huge task, right? So the first step in that is getting a collection of people who actually show they know how to operate everything. And we did that with the incentivized testnet. We launched that in December and we built up from nothing to almost a thousand stake pool operators. And we've gotten a huge governing community there. And so that basically means at launch, we're going to be the most decentralized cryptocurrency on market, about a hundred times more decentralized than Bitcoin and about 50 times more decentralized than EOS. But we had to do that and that's coming to an end. And now we actually have to start turning on the mainnet infrastructure. So we're going to have basically three test nets and they're going to run very rapidly. So they're not going on for months, but rather weeks, but three test nets. And each and every one of them is about turning on everything. So the first part is kind of a, a friends and family-ish test net, which is for in insiders to just help us verify that what we think is true is true. And that's actually almost ready to go. Uh, and then very shortly after that, we're going to take what they have and turn it on for all of the stake pool operators. And then we're going to try to work very hard to get those thousand plus people that have set up stake pools to get set up on that Haskell testnet. And then finally, the last thing we're going to do is set up a balance check testnet. So it's the whole stack. It's exactly what the mainnet's going to launch. And it's just going to verify all the accounting is right because we have to merge the rewards that people earned on the incentivized testnet with their existing holdings in Byron and put them together. So those are all coming very, very soon. And the Cardano.org website refresh is going to launch commensurate with that, with all the new marketing assets. Uh, and on the, the capstone, all of it, we're going to have a Shelly launch event. Uh, and we'll announce the date for that sometime in May. It's going to be a virtual summit. 
big event, lots of, lots of uh, presentations. And we're going to talk about our governance and our identity solution and how we do smart contracts. And also we're going to talk about how to run Shelly uh, and these types of things and probably launch Shelly commensurate with that event or right around that event. So it's a lot of stuff coming very soon. It sounds like a great event, actually. Well, yeah. um, Charles Hoskinson, you are on the on the path, you know, cutting your way through, laying laying down the the foundation for the for us to be on that path to decentralization. Thank you so much for doing that, and thank you for taking the time um, out of your farming for coming on the show today. Ha! Uh, when I get to, <laughs> when I get to planting the hay this year, I'll take some pictures, send it your way. Please, and thank you, Charlie. I want to come. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. When you could travel again, I'd love to have you and your wife here. We at were the, just at the planning a trip down to um, Colorado Springs because my wife's grandfather lives there and he's got a big ranch. Okay. Like, uh, so we were. I'm th- taking up on that. I'm just going to show up. Yeah, I, I mean, Eric Voorhees <laughs> is here and a lot of other people. There's a, you can just show up whenever you want. You know, I, I, when you're on a farm, you get used to having house guests. My uh, my grandfather, he grew up in Big Tipper, Montana, and he had a 600 acre farm. And uh, his uh, his wife's mother. Uh, she was a waitress for a really long time. When she couldn't be a waitress anymore, she just basically started inviting the town to come over for coffee every Sunday. So, <laughs> some, of awesome. my, so some of my fondest memories were going to Montana during the summertime, during Sundays, and just seeing like 50 people randomly show up at the farm. And I had no idea who any of these people are. And then this 80-year-old woman would come out, she's a Norwegian woman, uh, and she'd just start making them food and serve all of them like, uh, like a restaurant. And every Sunday, this would happen. So literally, the whole town of Big Timber went to the steam. That's ranch so cool. They, yeah. So, well, so that's a farmer tradition. So, social distancing is over. We can do that again. Thank you so much for coming on the show, and I'll and I'll talk to you later. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Charlie. This has been a lot of fun. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on UntoldStories.com, Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of Blockworks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Schrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers, and information is power.